You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Tom Clisham. Thursday the 5th of December, 1997, Gertie responded to a home in Inverton, Galway. After entering through a broken-in front door, they discovered a partially clothed body of a man lying on the bed. His hands had been bound behind his back with what were described in initial reports as a pair of ladies' tights. It was apparent that the man had been dead for some time, and he'd been left in the house with his dogs and a number of cats who, unfed, had gone to work on his body. Gurdie found some signs of disturbance in the home, as well as indications that others had been in the house. There were some signs of drinking, and the bedroom was in disarray. The man was 53-year-old Tom Clisham. He was a bachelor farmer and lived alone. Mr Clisham's small cottage was located near the Air Arran airfield, Connemara Airport today, on the landward side of the coast road in Connemara, and was about 200 yards from the Tick Tommy pub. Tom was described as a quiet, reclusive man, but he was often in the nearby pub and went to the city on occasions. He was born into this tiny, isolated community in the Gaeltacht in Galway, and had a brother and two sisters. At the time of Tom's death, his sisters lived in Galway City with their husbands and families, but his brother Colin had sadly died a number of years before, after suffering from exposure from being out in a field overnight. The disturbing discovery of Tom Clisham's body appeared to have been made when neighbours in the small and close-knit community became concerned that they hadn't seen Tom in a while, and eventually Gardie were contacted who entered the house that Thursday at around 4pm. When Gardie discovered Tom's body, it was their understanding that he had not been seen in the locality for some time and it was possible that the last sighting of him had been 13 days before, sometime over the weekend of the 21st or 22nd of November. Investigators were also told that Tom had failed to collect his farmer's dole the previous Friday. Given the position that Mr Clisham's body was found in, a murder investigation was launched. Chief Superintendent Tom Monaghan led the investigation, but gave few details of what Gardy had found, only saying that there were suspicious features in the bedroom. The house and the area around it was sealed off for forensics. Neighbours in the village were shocked at the news of Mr Clisham's passing, but told reporters that they had been worried when the man had not been seen out and about for a number of days. Gerda detectives investigated Tom's death over the following weekend, and on Monday the 8th of December, a nephew of Tom Clisham's, Patrick McGreen, appeared before the Galway District Court charged with intentionally or recklessly causing harm to Tom Clisham sometime between the 24th of November and December 4th. Mr McGreen was 28 and had addresses in Corrib Park and Mary Road in Galway. Patrick, or PJ McGreen, had been born in England but returned with his family to live in Galway when he was 10. According to the Sunday World, PJ became a talented boxer, but also developed a serious problem with alcohol, and so his career had floundered. At the time of his uncle's death, McGreen had recently returned to Galway after working abroad for a period of time. Evidence of arrest was given by Detective Sergeant Sean O'Grady while McGreen stood handcuffed between two other Garda members. He'd been arrested in Salt Hill earlier that day, and had made no reply to the charges when put to him. Sean O'Carroll, solicitor, appearing on behalf of Mr Green, said that they would not be making an application for bail at that time, but did ask that Mr McGreen receive psychiatric treatment while in custody. McGreen was then remanded without bail. Two other men had been brought in for questioning by Gardie at the same time earlier that day, but had been released without charge. Bail was applied for later that month on Mr McGreen's behalf, which was objected to by Gardie. 
Superintendent Jim Sugru told the court that Gardy felt McGreen was likely to abscond and had already interfered with a state witness in the case against him. Superintendent Sugru informed the court that Mr. McGreen was only back in the country five weeks after returning from Holland, where he had lived, among other locations. In addition, the court was told that Mr. McGreen stated to Gardy during interviews that he was not prepared to serve a single day of any sentence he might be given. McGreen said he'd go back to Holland and would never be found. During the hearing, it was suggested to the superintendent by counsel for PJ that McGreen had simply meant that he wouldn't serve a day because he was not guilty of the charge against him, but the Garda stated that this was not his interpretation of the words. According to the superintendent, Mr. McGreen had also made threats against a person who was a witness in the case and had in fact assaulted this witness, Michal Folan, while they were both in custody at Mill Street Garda Station for questioning. Mr. Folan had become upset and violent in return and had to be restrained by Gardee. Mr. Folan himself appeared to give evidence to the court at this hearing. He alleged that he had been confronted at Tom Clisham's funeral by the accused and was afraid of him. For his part, during the bail application, Mr. McGreen denied that he had threatened Folan. McGreen's solicitor, Mr. O'Carroll, also took the opportunity during this hearing to make the court aware that his client was not receiving the medical attention McGreen needed and that the request for this had been sent to the prison but nothing had been forthcoming. An order was made that McGreen was to receive appropriate medical and psychiatric care but, in the end, the application for bail was denied and McGreen was once more remanded in custody. On the 5th of January, McGreen and his legal counsel were before the district court once again, with their focus being on the lack of medical care that McGreen had received to that point while in custody. Judge John Garavan was informed that the request to provide medical and psychiatric treatment to McGreen had not been acted upon by the prison. By this stage, the request had been made by both McGreen's solicitor and the High Court judge from the bail hearing. Judge Garavan said he was amazed that no action had been taken on foot of the High Court's request and suggested that raising the issue at the High Court once more, or even the threat of that, might prompt the treatment to be provided. At the end of that month, January of 1998, there was a further hearing in the District Court where Judge Con O'Leary was informed by Superintendent Sugru that a file with more serious charges to be brought against PJ McGreen was being prepared and would be ready within a number of weeks. Those charges were forthcoming in mid-March of 1998 when Patrick McGreen was charged with the murder of his uncle, Tom Clisham. On the 8th of April, McGreen appeared before the High Court appealing for bail to be granted for a second time, this time relating to his upgraded charge. His lawyers argued that it could be a further nine months before McGreen would face trial and it would be unfair to keep a person in prison for that time without a determination of guilt. Superintendent Jim Sugru appeared yet again and described the allegations that McGreen had twice threatened his second cousin, Michal Folan. Sugru disclosed that Gardy had reason to believe that Folan was the sole witness to what had happened to Tom Clisham. The superintendent reiterated that McGreen had lived in both Holland and in the US, and there was a strong possibility that McGreen would abscond abroad to either country should he be allowed out on bail. The alleged threatened witness, Michal Folan, was again brought in to appear and gave further details of the interactions which Gardy argued indicated that PJ McGreen should not be granted bail. Mr Folan referenced the alleged threats made against him at Tom Clisham's removal from his cottage home to the church. According to Folan, McGreen had said to him, quote, If you say anything about this, I'm going to kill you too. Michal Folan also told the bail hearing that, later, in Salt Hill Garda Station, McGreen had attacked him after he'd made a statement to Gardy about what had occurred in Tom Clisham's house on the night the older man had died. The implication of these events taken together was that Mr Folan might have information of what exactly had happened to his uncle Tom Clisham, which implicated the accused, and that McGreen might be inclined to take action to prevent Folan from divulging this. However, Mr. McGreen reiterated his claim that he had not threatened Folan and asserted that he was prepared to prove his innocence in a court of law and allow that process to play out. He said, quote, I haven't threatened anyone. I have killed no one. 
Bail was once again denied and Patrick McGreen was remanded back into custody. On the 13th of May, he was returned for trial. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. Men's Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. I adore anything that makes life easier and BetterHelp is the perfect solution to looking after your mental health. What could be easier than an online portal where you can video chat, call or text with your therapist from the comfort of your own home? And BetterHelp will match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs. And you can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely, thoughtful responses. And you can start professional online counseling in less than 48 hours. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that may not be available in your area. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com forward slash M-E-N-S. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Don't forget, BetterHelp are offering Men's Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. Patrick McGreen's trial for the murder of his uncle, Tom Clisham, began on Monday the 18th of January 1999 in the Central Criminal Court before Mr. Justice Cyril Kelly and a jury of nine men and three women. Mr. McGreen entered pleas of not guilty to the murder charge and to a charge of intentionally or recklessly causing serious harm to Mr. Clisham. Michael Dirac, appearing as senior counsel on behalf of the DPP, outlined the case against PJ McGreen. He said that the jury would hear from a witness who was with the defendant on the 24th of November 1997 at Tom Clisham's house. After drinking large amounts of whiskey, an argument had erupted between McGreen and Mr. Clisham, and the witness would say McGreen had attacked the older man, killing him. The defence, however, led by John Rogers' senior counsel, would take issue with a number of aspects of the state's case, saying that there was other evidence that Mr. Clisham had been seen alive after the date of this alleged argument. Mr. Rogers would argue that what had happened here, in fact, was that Gardy had interpreted the scene in Tom Clisham's house as indicative of an assault with an element of sexual violence. When they brought the defendant in for questioning, Gardy had wanted to know about the night of the 24th and an argument which either resulted in or was prompted by a sexual assault. When it was discovered that the physical evidence did not support this theory, this motive was later dropped. The court would hear Mr. McGreen had denied any such incident took place and his defence team would argue that there was no physical evidence indicating McGreen had killed his uncle. Evidence began on Tuesday the 19th of January, where another of Tom Clisham's nephews and the defendant's cousin, Martin Sherry, took to the stand and recounted how he'd arrived at his uncle's house at a quarter past three on the 4th of December two years before. He'd gone there after his aunt, the defendant's mother, had rang the Sherry family home and asked if anyone had seen Tom. No one had seen him or had any news of him in recent days and so Mr. Sherry had driven out to Clisham's bungalow along with his sister and her kids who were bundled into the back of his car. When he got out to Tom's place, Martin testified, he'd looked into a window and saw his uncle's body lying on his bed. Martin told the court that he had then, quote, kicked in the door and went into the cottage as far as the bedroom, at which point he'd turned and left. Martin and his sister went to a neighbour's and they made a call back to the Sherry house to raise the alarm, and Gardy were then contacted. Despite the shock of discovering his uncle's body, Martin recalled something else that had stood out to him. Just outside his uncle's home, propped on the outer wall next to the front door, was a picture of the sacred heart that he had given to his uncle as a gift. Mr. Sherry explained that his uncle was a very religious man, and it had struck him that this picture, with broken glass in the frame, was not something that Tom would have discarded or thrown away, as Tom would have considered it holy. 
While on the stand, Martin Sherry was also questioned regarding a conversation he had had with Tom Clisham about six weeks before Mr Clisham had died. Mr Sherry agreed with senior counsel John Rogers, acting for Mr McGreen, that it had in fact been an argument regarding the inheritance of land belonging to Mr Clisham. But Mr Sherry told the court that he hadn't thought of it as a very serious row or a falling out. Martin explained that his uncle had actually already offered him some land two years before, and at the time he told Tom that he didn't mind if the land was left to him, but he didn't want it signed over to him at the time. Martin Sherry told the court, quote, If I got the land, I wouldn't make any secret of it. I would have taken it, end quote. But he said this gift of land or transfer of the farm wasn't a desperate want or need on Martin's part, and certainly not something that would have caused a huge row or that would have given Martin a reason to want to harm Tom Clisham. The next witness to the stand had also been present on the scene in Connemara in the aftermath of the discovery of Tom Clisham's death. Detective Garda Kevin Brooks, who was from the Technical Bureau, said that on arrival at the cottage he had firstly helped to take two dogs that had been found, quote, cowering in a corner in Mr Clisham's bedroom from the home. The detective went on to give the first detailed description of the gruesome scene observed in Tom Clisham's home. Detective Brooks confirmed that he had noted significant predation to Mr Clisham's body from the dogs which had been locked in the house with him. Mr Clisham's body had been found in a bedroom in the home, lying on the bed. Both of Mr Clisham's wrists had been loosely tied together with a piece of clothing. His two hands were clenched and the detective noted he had seen what he thought were a few hairs in the left hand. They were collected for evidence. Various biological samples had also been taken from Mr Clisham's body, but the detective testified that there was, quote, no suggestion whatsoever of anything sexual, whether homosexual or whatever, having transpired, end quote. There was a heavily blood-stained area near the fridge in the kitchen, and from this, the detective sergeant had concluded that a violent assault had taken place at that spot, while Mr Clisham was in a position low to the floor. This assault, Detective Sergeant Brooks said, had moved from this area in the kitchen towards the front door of the house and then into the bedroom, where Mr Clisham's body was eventually found. From what he had seen in the bedroom, Detective Brooks had concluded that the assault had continued to be very severe in nature as it went on there. Once again, Mr Clisham appeared to have been in a quote lower position as he was assaulted close to and then on the bed. Detective Brooks informed the court that in this room he had also recovered a broken off top of a whiskey bottle under the bed. The broken side had very sharp ends and there was, quote, a considerable amount of blood left on the bottle piece. On the third day of the trial, a local Garda, Pat O'Connor, testified that he had not been able to positively identify Tom Clisham when he arrived at the cottage in December of 1997. Garda O'Connor told the court that the only conclusion he could draw with any certainty was that he was in Tom Clisham's house and that Mr Clisham was missing. After the local Garda gave evidence, Superintendent James Sugru described how he had arrived on the scene at 25 to 5 on the 4th of December 1997. Inside the cottage were two sheepdogs. As he went further into the house, he saw blood splattered on the fridge and floor, and he noted paw prints through the considerable amount of blood that was there. As he went into the bedroom, he saw Tom's body on the bed, with one of the cats on top of him. There was also another cat elsewhere in the room. On cross, Sergeant Sugru concurred with Garda O'Connor that it had been impossible to visually identify Tom Clisham as his body had been mutilated due to the work of the animals in the house before he was found. The sergeant agreed with counsel that he had left the cats and dogs in the house for a period of time between his arrival at the scene and when the technical bureau arrived, which was at about 11pm that night. Sergeant Sugru explained that this had been the approach taken as it was thought that any attempt to remove the animals might have interfered with the evidence in the house and he did not want to risk that. John Rogers, for the defence, went on to question Sergeant Sugru regarding three interviews he had conducted with various people in order to establish the last sightings of Mr Clisham before he was found dead. Some of the statements indicated that these people had seen Tom after the 24th of November the date the state were now arguing Mr Clisham had been killed, and possibly as late as the 28th of November. 
Superintendent Sugru maintained that these witnesses had mistaken the dates and they'd actually seen Tom the week before it had been recorded in the statements. Mr. Rogers simply responded, quote, Well, we'll see about that. The following day, Thursday the 21st of January, the court heard evidence from the defendant's cousin, Michal Folan, who gave his testimony Osgleilge in Irish, and because of this had an interpreter present with him to ensure his Irish was understood by the rest of the court. Mr. Folan testified that he had been with the defendant in a pub on Air Square in Galway City on November 24, 1997. While there, PJ McGreen told him that he'd been in Amsterdam and that he'd like to see his uncle Tom again and that Tom would have to sign over his house and land to him. Mr. Folan and Mr. McGreen continued drinking together in the pub for a few hours and then, the witness said, they'd both headed out to their uncle Tom's cottage. When they arrived there, Tom was asleep in bed and the witness and the defendant had woken him up with their knocking. According to Michal Folan, once their uncle was awake, he, Folan and McGreen had gone into the house and began drinking with Tom Clisham, where they finished off two bottles of whiskey between them. Folan recalled that after this, the defendant had told Mr. Clisham that he needed to sign over the land to him, but Tom had responded that he wasn't signing anything over to anyone. Mr. Folan alleged that at this, Mr. McGreen had pulled a picture off the wall and threw it out of the house, which had upset Tom Clisham. Then McGreen had, quote, hit Tom off the table, knocking the older man back into the furniture and toppling the empty whiskey bottles that had sat there, causing them to break on the floor. Folan outlined how the defendant had grabbed the top of one of the broken whiskey bottles and prodded his uncle with the glass. As he described this on the stand, Mr. Folan gestured to his throat, indicating where this so-called prod had fallen. The witness said he had wanted to stop the accused, but told the court that while McGreen was still holding the broken bottle, McGreen had struck him, just under his left eye, with his free hand. Folan recalled that the defendant had then turned back to their uncle and Folan continued, quote, After that, he gave Tom another prod and then another prod and then another one. The witness said McGreen had struck out at Mr. Clisham four times with the glass, quote, one after another in the same place. In the course of this attack, blood became visible on the floor and on the dresser. Mr. Folan's evidence continued into the following day, the fifth of the trial. He continued his story of the night of the 24th, saying that when McGreen stopped using the broken glass on his uncle, McGreen had proceeded to wrap some cloth around Tom Clisham's hands. Then, according to Folan, the defendant had pulled off the man's trousers and underwear. Folan said, quote, When I saw McGreen do that, I went out the door. He made his way to the front gate and heard his cousin coming after him, so Folan crouched down behind the wall on the roadside. McGreen didn't see him, but yelled out that if he, the defendant, caught him, he'd kill him. This had taken place at around 4am, and Folan said he'd then gone home and went to bed. Folan admitted that he began drinking again the next day, and he didn't stop for a week, apparently due to the distress of what he had witnessed. On the day of Tom Clisham's funeral, Michal Folan alleged that McGreen had come up behind him and threatened him, saying if Folan told anyone about what had happened, he'd kill him. John Rogers then began his cross-examination of Mr. Folan. Folan agreed when the defending counsel put it to him that he'd been in the local pub in Inverin on the night of Mr. Clisham's removal, but denied that he'd made a statement to another cousin, Mike Clisham, that he was, quote, almost sure who did it, and that he had suspicions about three people in particular who he thought might be responsible for Tom Clisham's death. The witness said in this instance his cousin had been mistaken about what had happened. Folan also denied when put to him an allegation that he had been cornered in the pub by two women who asked him questions about the statements he had made that night that he knew things about his uncle's death. The cross-examination then moved on to Michal Folan's interactions with the Gardee in the days after the discovery of Tom Clisham's body. Folan insisted that he had not spoken to any Gardee between the night of the 24th of November and when he made a statement to Gardee when he was brought to the station in Galway on the 7th of December. Mr. Rogers asked him, was it not the case that he had spoken to Garda Pat O'Connor when the guard called to his house on the 4th of December? To that, Mr. Folan said, quote, I don't remember those days at all. A reference to the heavy drinking Folan said he'd engaged in after the death of his uncle.
On Monday, the 25th of January, after a break for the weekend, Michal Folan had his third day in the witness box, when his cross-examination by John Rogers focused on earlier in the day that the state was arguing Tom Clisham had been killed. Folan recalled that on the 24th of November he had four or five pints in a hotel, followed by another five or six at a pub in Ayres Square, and he said he'd had no food that day. He'd met the defendant in the pub somewhere between six or eight o'clock, though Michal Folan told John Rogers that he couldn't really be sure of the time. Folan denied that he had changed the times he had given in court, as those were not the times he had outlined in a statement to Gardee. Folan said that Morgan O'Malley, a previous witness, had not been there in Tom Clisham's house on the night of the 24th when he and McGreen took a taxi out there. Mr O'Malley had previously testified to that effect before the court. Folan also denied that this other man, Mr O'Malley, had been egging on an argument between his uncle and yet another man present in the cottage who was named in court. Folan insisted that the only, quote, winding up Tom that night was the defendant, PJ McGreen. Folan also denied that there had been discussion in the cottage that night about a religious picture before Mr McGreen had taken it off the wall and thrown it outside and he made a further denial that he had shown Mr. McGreen a knife sometime on the night in question. Folan's evidence concluded on its fourth day, on Tuesday the 26th of January. In a dramatic moment, defence counsel John Rogers asked Michal Folan to don a pair of disposable gloves and handed him a piece of fabric. It was obviously bloodstained, and the jury were told that this was what had been used to bind Tom Clisham's hands. Folan was asked to hold up this cloth to show it to the jurors. John Rogers then asked the witness was it not the case that he had made this strip of material from a sheet that was in Mr Clisham's kitchen in order to tie his uncle's hands. Folan denied this and, in order to support his assertion of innocence, declared that his fingerprints were not present on the cloth. The next witness to take the stand was a postmaster from an office just southwest of Inverin in Galway. Tom Clisham had collected his social welfare payment there on a weekly basis and the postmaster, Michael Walsh, told the court that he would see the deceased usually on a Friday. The last time he had seen Mr Clisham was on the 21st of November. He had not arrived as expected on the 28th, the following Friday. Mr Walsh's father, Thomas Walsh, was worried when there was no sign of Tom Clisham and had asked after the man with Tom's relatives. After this, Colin Clisham, one of Tom Clisham's cousins, said he had gone drinking at the bar at the airport in Koshvarga with both Tom and a man called Porig Keneally on the morning of the 24th of November. In the witness stand, Mr Clisham denied that there had been a row between Tom Clisham and Mr Keneally while they were all at the bar. On Wednesday the 27th of January, the state pathologist, Dr John Harbison, appeared to give evidence. Dr Harbison recalled that when he arrived at the scene in Connemara, the cottage had a significant amount of animal excrement present and there was a bad smell in the cottage which was particularly strong in the bedroom. Inside the bedroom, the pathologist had observed Tom Clisham's body on the bed. The only item of clothing apparent on Mr Clisham was a pair of socks on his feet. Dr Harbison told the court that most of the visible injuries on the body were the result of the animals and that this had been quite severe, resulting in extensive, quote, defleshing on the top part of Mr Clisham's body, and even in the absence of a number of his ribs. However, Dr Harbison said that this was not unusual in cases where animals were present alongside a deceased person. In terms of cause of death, Dr Harbison concluded that Tom Clisham had died from strangulation, though many of the normal signs of this could not be established due to the state of the body bleeding into the mastoid, an area just behind the ear, and a vertical fracture of the air pipe supported this conclusion, he said. There was also a fracture to the Adam's apple, which Dr Harbison said had either been caused by manual strangulation or being struck by something akin to a karate chop. The binding of Mr Clisham's hands was quite loose, and Harbison said that it was possible that these could have been self-tied. The pathologist also testified that his examination of Mr Clisham's body indicated that there was a possible suggestion that anal intercourse might have taken place. The results of tests of Tom Clisham's blood showed that the deceased had had alcohol in his system equivalent to three times the legal driving limit at the time of his death. 
When cross-examined by John Rogers, Dr. Harbison agreed that it was also possible that Tom Clisham could have died from a combination of hypothermia and alcohol overdose. And Dr. Harbison noted that it wouldn't be unusual to find cases like that, especially in rural areas where homemade alcohol would be more commonly found. The court was then cleared for the hearing of legal argument and did not return until later the following week. When evidence in PJ McGreen's trial resumed a week and a half later, on Friday the 5th of February, Detective Sergeant Sean O'Grady took to the stand. Detective Sergeant O'Grady recalled that when he got out to Tom Clisham's cottage, the dogs inside were, quote, barking viciously, and it had been decided that a dog warden should be called for safety reasons. The detective sergeant told John Rogers that he had not entered a toilet room where the defence counsel suggested there could have been, quote, things which might have been useful in terms of strangulation or if someone wanted to engage in bondage or tying up, end quote. Evidence was then given regarding Detective Sergeant O'Grady's knowledge of what had occurred when PJ McGreen was in Garda custody before his arrest for Tom Clisham's murder. According to the detective, the defendant had been cooperative with Gardy while in the station. During his interview, Mr. McGreen had been asked if anything untoward had taken place in the house on the night of the 24th of November, and the defendant had allegedly responded, quote, No, nothing like that. I was abused by priests years ago. John Rogers for the defence then put it to O'Grady that it had been suggested to McGreen that sexual advances had been made by his uncle which surprised McGreen and resulted in a row. The defendant had at that point denied that anything of the sort had happened. After a break for the weekend, evidence resumed on Monday the 8th of February when Detective Sergeant Lynham told the court about interviews he had conducted with the defendant PJ McGreen on the 8th of December 1997. McGreen had at that time declined to make a written statement, but the detective sergeant had taken a memo of what he alleged to have been said by the defendant. The memo, however, had not been signed by Mr. McGreen. It was alleged to have included incriminating statements, such as, quote, I don't remember what I do when I have whiskey. I don't do these things. I'm not a monster. He's the monster. When I drink, he takes over. The monster is gone now until I drink whiskey. Frank, I call him. He's always there, but I can control him when I don't drink whiskey. It was Frank that killed Uncle Tom, not PJ. John Rogers' defending then referenced another statement alleged to have been made by McGreen during this questioning, where the defendant apparently stated, quote, I am not a homosexual. Rogers asked Sergeant Lynham why it was that the defendant had said this. Lynham insisted that the issue of McGreen's sexual orientation was not something that had been put to the defendant during the questioning. The defence counsel pressed the sergeant, asking, was it not the case that Lynham and his colleagues had outlined a scenario involving some sort of sexual activity happening in Tom Clisham's house that night? This had prompted the defendant, Mr. McGreen, to say he wasn't gay, and further, that he was willing to give a blood sample to prove he had no sexual contact with Tom Clisham. But Sergeant Lynham denied this interaction had happened during the interview. Rogers said that because of the way Tom Clisham had been found, the guardie had assumed that he had died while engaged in some sort of sexual behaviour gone wrong, and that guardie had repeatedly put this to McGreen during the questioning, and quote-unquote accused him of being gay. The memo of the interview recorded that McGreen had apparently said, quote, I hadn't sex with my uncle. Why would I have sex with an old man? There are plenty of young people out there if I wanted sex. I am not a homosexual, end quote. John Rogers put it to Sergeant Lynham that this particular phrase indicated what the investigator's line of questioning had been, and put it to Sergeant Lynham that, quote, you believed it to be a sexual crime, and you were putting to him that he had had sex with his uncle. Questioning of the investigating officer by the defence then turned to the circumstances of how and why Mr. McGreen was allowed to be in the presence of his cousin, Mr. Folan, in the Garda station, who had also been interviewed by Gardy that day and who the court had already heard from as a witness. Mr. Rogers noted that by the time of this interaction in the station, Michal Folan was said to have given three statements or collections of notes, and McGreen had been told of some of what Folan had said, but the totality of these three statements had not been handed over to the defendant at that time. 
Sergeant Lynham agreed with defence counsel that only one of the statements given by Folan had been given to the accused. Rogers put it to the sergeant that it was unfair that McGreen had been told only about one of the statements and had been asked then to respond to it. Rogers asked if Gardy had told the defendant about a portion of Folan's statement that described McGreen jumping on Mr. Clisham. The detective responded that he couldn't remember what exactly had been read out to him, but did confirm in his testimony, quote, I told McGreen that Folan had made a statement implicating him in it. Rogers suggested that Gardy had decided to use part of what they had been told by Michal Folan in order to pressure the defendant into confessing to killing Tom Clisham, and continued, quote, I put it to you that you found yourselves on Monday morning with the permissible detention period nearly run out and no self-incriminating statements. It was defence counsel's assertion that Gardy had tried to elicit statements from the accused by telling him that his cousin had said he was responsible. And not only had parts of Mr. Folan's statements been revealed to the defendant, Sergeant Lynham told the court that Michal Folan had been brought in to see Mr. McGreen at McGreen's request. Mr. Rogers contended that this was a highly unusual move to make, to bring someone at the request of an accused, particularly when that person is an accuser. The defence lawyer said that even if such a meeting was requested, there was simply no proper reason for Gardy to do this. Rogers put it to Detective Sergeant Lynham that this whole interaction was a, quote, gambit to crack the case. That is, the Gardy had engineered this meeting between the two cousins in a last-ditch effort to get some sort of incriminating statements from P.J. McGreen. The next day, there was more testimony heard from Gardy who had been involved in questioning Mr. McGreen. In particular, Detective Inspector P.J. Durkin told the court that at one point during the interview, he had asked Mr. McGreen about a broken bottle, which they had been told the accused had held to Tom Clisham's neck. The detective inspector said that McGreen had responded to the effect, quote, No, I can't remember, but if you say I done it, I done it. Inspector Durkin said that he had interpreted this statement as an admission by the defendant. Then, on Wednesday the 10th of February, forensic scientist Matthew James Greenhog from a lab in Oxfordshire gave evidence regarding a blood sample he had received from the body found in Tom Clisham's house. His testing of this sample had been used to confirm that the deceased in the house was in fact Tom Clisham. Mr. Greenhall had compared the DNA results from that sample with another taken from Tom Clisham's sister. From this comparison, he could see that the DNA was similar and did two calculations, one assuming that the two samples were brother and sister and another with the assumption that they were unrelated. Greenhall's results indicated that the samples were 700 times more likely to be that of brother and sister than unrelated. However, on cross-examination, the scientist agreed that this was not conclusive proof of the familial relationship. Mr. Greenhall told John Rogers that he had considered what the results might be if the two samples were from people in a small rural community with a high level of interrelation. In that case, Greenhall determined that the degree of similarity would be very slight compared with the two samples he had looked at. Further forensic evidence was heard the following day. Assistant State Pathologist Dr Fiona Thornton outlined tests that had been carried out on an area of blood staining found on Tom Clisham's body. She had determined that this blood was consistent with Mr McGreen's blood type. Dr Thompson said that the sample had been taken from blood deposited on Mr Clisham's shin and it had not matched either Tom Clisham or the two other men who were alleged to have been present in the house with him on the night of his death. After this, Detective Sergeant Declan Buckley told the court that he had also carried out an examination of the scene in Tom Clisham's house. In the course of his search, Detective Buckley testified he'd removed a number of items for testing, including the neck of a whiskey bottle with blood staining on it. He had also revealed that a fingerprint left in blood had been compared to a fingerprint sample given by the defendant. Detective Buckley was of the opinion that they were a match, having 12 characteristics in sequence. On Tuesday the 16th of February, the court heard from locals who had seen Tom Clisham before his death in November of 1997. 
First, Miss Iris O'Reilly took to the stand. She worked in a pub owned by her family where Tom Clisham had been a regular. When she first spoke to Gardie, Miss O'Reilly told them that she had last seen Mr. Clisham on the 28th of November and gave them names of the men who had been with him. She had been asked to make a statement and did so. However, Iris then told the court, quote, about a week later they came back to the pub and asked me to change my statement because he couldn't have been here because he was dead. Her impression of the guards who came out to her was that they were unprofessional and she said they were laughing and joking. When Iris told Gardie that she was sure of the date she had given them, the witness alleged that one had responded, quote, it must be a case of dead man walking then because he was dead the week before. Iris testified that the Gardie had been into her three or four times a day for a week or two regarding her statement, asking her to reconsider the date that she had last seen Mr. Clisham. In the circumstances, Iris felt that she had to go along with the Gardie's request to change the date on her statement. Iris told the court that she hadn't wanted to, but felt she had no choice. She'd even gone to a solicitor later and told him that she hadn't wanted to make the second statement. She told the court that she was quite sure she had seen Tom Clisham at the pub on the 28th and he had come up to the bar to buy drink consistently throughout the night. There had been a birthday party in the pub that night and she had a record of the event booking in a diary, which she showed to the court. Sean O'Reilly, the owner of the same pub in Rosseville, took to the stand as well and said that he had seen Tom Clisham with some other men in his pub on the 28th of November. He said he had no reason to doubt his recollection of the date. Not only did he remember that there had been a party at the pub that night, he also needed to travel to Armagh the next day and so the evening had been very clear in his memory. Mr. Dirac, for the prosecution, put it to Mr. O'Reilly that he was the only witness maintaining that Clisham was alive on the 28th. O'Reilly responded to counsel, saying that he was just telling the court what he had seen. Mr. O'Reilly simply reiterated that he remembered Tom was in on the night of the birthday party in the pub and that he had had to travel to Craigavon in Armagh the following day to collect a car. Because of these two things, the night had stood out to him. After the evidence in the case concluded, closing speeches took place on Thursday the 18th of February. Michael Dirac for the state took to his feet first and reiterated the state's theory of the crime, saying that a row had occurred on the night of the 24th between the defendant and the deceased, possibly over the inheritance of land. Blood consistent with Mr. McGreen, and Mr. Dirac admitted just a further 4% of the population, was found on Tom Clisham's skin. The prosecutor asserted that the evidence the jury had been presented with was such that it did not allow the prospect of a reasonable doubt to remain. They should find Mr. McGreen guilty of the murder of his uncle, Tom Clisham. Then John Rogers gave his closing speech on behalf of PJ McGreen. Rogers told the jury that the state had no case against his client and relied heavily on a witness that Rogers argued could not be believed. The defence lawyer said that Michal Folan was, quote, a liar and a perjurer in that box, and while giving evidence was, quote, treating you, the juror, with contempt. Rogers went on to state that there was, quote, uncontradicted evidence from three witnesses that they had seen Clisham alive and well between the 24th and the 28th. That being the case, there was no way that what the state said happened had actually happened, and PJ McGreen should be found not guilty. At the end of that day, after closing statements had concluded, Mr Justice Kelly asked the jurors to bring an overnight bag into court with them the following morning, in case their deliberations should have to be suspended for the night. Mr Justice Kelly gave his instructions to the jury when court resumed on the 19th of February, and they then retired to consider their verdict. The jury of nine men and three women returned after just over one hour of deliberation. They had found PJ McGreen not guilty of the murder of his uncle Tom Clisham. He was also acquitted of the charge of intentionally or recklessly causing harm to the older man. Mr Justice Cyril Kelly thanked the jury for their attention throughout the five-week trial and excused them from further service for the next ten years. Mr McGreen was surrounded by family and well-wishers as the verdict was read out. After the conclusion of the trial, the Sunday World interviewed Michal Folan. When he gave evidence on the stand, John Rogers had effectively accused him of committing Tom's murder, if not entirely, then at least in part. 
Mr. Folan said that though his near neighbours and family had been very supportive of him, he was distressed at the implication by McGreen's defence lawyers that he had killed Tom. They had been friends, he said. And since this accusation on the stand, Folan said he was frightened in his own home and slept with the lights on as he lived alone. He told the paper, quote, I fear it is going to be very difficult to undo the damage that I have suffered as a result of the court allegation. A family member also spoke to the paper and said, quote, Michal played no part whatsoever in the murder. It is only right that everyone should know that. It would be an appalling injustice if he had to live out the remainder of his life being blamed for something he did not do. PJ McGreen spoke to the same paper in August of 1999, eight months later. McGreen was described as gaunt-looking by journalist Damien Lane and said that he was living in forced exile from his home place despite being found not guilty in the court of law. The former concrete worker alleged that there had been a number of threats against him and his family in Galway and that there was ongoing harassment of them too. PJ McGreen explained how it was that he had come to be in Galway at the time of his uncle's death and what his circumstances had been at the time. Quote, I'd been working in Dane Hag for a year and a half. I had a good life there. The money was excellent. I was earning £500 a week and the company gave us flights home every 12 weeks. I came home to be with my family for Christmas and to have a bit of crack, but I intended on returning to Holland in early January, end quote. McGreen had only intended on being back in the country for a six-week break. During the interview, Mr McGreen gave his version of what had happened on the night the state alleged Tom Clisham was killed. PJ told Damien Lane, quote, Michal and I were drinking pints in Richardson's bar on the night of the 24th. I had about seven or eight pints and I was fairly jarred. We were chatting away and stayed till about half eight. Mike bought two bottles of whiskey and asked if I wanted to go up to see Tom, end quote. According to Mr McGreen, the two cousins had arrived at Tom Clisham's cottage at about half past nine. They all started drinking. PJ told the paper he had not seen Tom in about three years. As McGreen told it, nothing happened that night, bar drinking and chatting. Tom had been talking about travelling and religion. After they finished the two bottles of whiskey Mike had bought, Mike and Tom walked to a local pub and bought another two bottles of whiskey, and the drinking had continued. McGreen said he'd become aware of the time at about half past one and realised he was very drunk. He was told he could lie down for a sleep in the spare room and did this. McGreen said he woke at half past seven and saw his uncle Tom was asleep in the chair. PJ was incredibly hungover and decided to head back to Galway, and that was the last time he had seen or heard of his uncle until the discovery of his body. McGreen said, quote, After Tom was buried, we all went for a drink. There was a lot of talk about who killed Tom and why. Later on, I noticed that we were being followed by detectives. The long and short of it was that McGreen said he had nothing at all to do with his uncle's death. After the trial concluded, PJ McGreen had moved to London and got a job just outside the capital at a fun fair. McGreen told the paper, quote, I'm trying to rebuild my life. I have a new girlfriend and a fairly decent life, but I desperately want to come home. At the moment, I can't walk down the street in my hometown because people still think I'm guilty. I'm speaking out today to clear my name once and for all, and to help ease the pain of my family in Galway. McGreen also addressed the impact that the case had had on other members of his family. He said he felt very sorry for his mother, who had loved his uncle Tom, her brother, and said she had stood behind him all the way as she knew PJ wasn't guilty. PJ said that the support of his mother and father had gotten him through the ordeal. His parents just wanted the truth, like he did, and he called on Gardy to reinvestigate his uncle's killing to find out who was responsible. The inquest into Tom Clisham's death was held in February of 2000, a year after PJ McGreen's trial for murder. The jury found that Mr Clisham had died by asphyxia in his home on the night of the 24th to the 25th of November 1997. However, during the hearing, a solicitor appearing on behalf of the McGreen family had objected to the fact that Iris O'Reilly had not been called as a witness, given that she said she'd seen Tom alive on the 28th of November, days after the state's proposed date of his death. The court had heard Iris's statement, along with her follow-up statement, which were both read to the coroner's court. One of the guardee who had investigated the case, Detective Garda Brian Mungan, denied that he had coerced Iris to alter his statement to reflect an earlier date more consistent with the Garda's theory of the crime. He said he had visited Ms O'Reilly only three times during the investigation. 
The inquest also heard from Martin McDonough, a cousin of Tom Clisham's, who gave evidence that he had been with Tom Clisham on the 23rd of November in the Teague Terry pub in Rossaville, not on the 28th as the O'Reillys had stated. Mr. McDonough had recorded this event in his diary and said the O'Reillys were, quote, telling lies. A solicitor representing Mary Sherry, one of Tom Clisham's sisters at the inquest, made an application that a rider be added to the coroner's court verdict, calling on the Justice Minister to make a full investigation into the Garda handling and investigation of the case. This application was not granted. After the verdict at the inquest, Superintendent Michael Curley made a statement to the press in order to address the allegation that the Guardi and the investigation had forced certain witnesses to change their statements. The superintendent denied this strenuously, saying this was a very serious allegation which was, quote, scurrilous and groundless. Since then, the year 2000, there have been no further developments in the case, and Tom Clisham's murderer has never been brought to justice. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes out to Carson Sample, Eileen Knight, and Will Atwood. If you'd like ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, nifty merch, or my undying love, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to Michaela Vilko, who sent me a gift over PayPal. I hope your drive was safe and enjoyable, and that 2,000 miles worth of my voice wasn't too much like torture. With thanks also to our sponsor for this week's episode, BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's Song That Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.